So let me open us with a word of prayer and and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing it is that we get to come and be a part of the Faith Builders class every week. I thank you for the encouragement we draw from the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, that you will help us uh, understand a, a difficult passage of scripture. I pray that you will help us to not fixate on minor issues, but that through all the teaching, through all of our study of your word, we'll be able to keep our minds on the big picture, which is Jesus Christ and his death for sinners like us. Pray that everything that we do today would bring you honor and glory, and I pray even now for the communion service that we have during our evening worship service, Lord, that you would start preparing our hearts now to remember the death of our Savior. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of our study of 1 Peter chapter 3, and we are continuing to go through a section of Scripture that really is dealing with the life of a Christian in the midst of persecution. So we are in the midst of a section where there's been a little bit of a transition in the book of 1 Peter. I think the overarching flow of the book is always about how believers can live holy lives. 1 Peter 1 verses 14 to 16 make it clear that we're supposed to be holy as God is holy. I think that always is what keeps coming up in the book of 1 Peter. But as we got into chapter 3, we're in a transition point away from just general life, which is important. Live holy in your general life. Be an excellent witness to the Gentiles with your behavior. But now he's dealing with believers in the context of hardship, of persecution, of the reality that you might suffer for your faith in Christ. And we're in the midst of a section that I've been teaching on for a few weeks, found at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. And it's trying to encourage believers who are suffering for doing the right thing. The lead-in for this section is really verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And Peter's explained prior to this that normally if you're doing the right thing, even unbelievers will leave you alone, but that's not always the case. Sometimes you will suffer even when you've done the right thing. And he says it's better. Certainly if you suffer for your sin, for doing the wrong thing, there's no pat on the back for that. You deserved it. But if God should will it so, if you suffer for doing what's right, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. It's a blessing. But it's not easy doesn't make it any less unfair. It certainly is hard for us to accept that. And so Peter, I believe, is illustrating and, and showing us that point. If you suffer because you did the right thing, don't despair, don't panic. And he gives a, a discourse, a few verses on Jesus and what happened to him that help us to have the right attitude. So I'm going to read through verses 18, and I'm only going to read right now down through verse 20, even though it goes all the way to the end, but just follow along. Actually, I'll start at verse 17. This is just setting the stage for where we are. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who 
once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, I've had a simple two-part outline for this. I have broken this section down into a two-part outline, two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice, and that's the ultimate, I think, point here. If you suffer for doing what is right, don't despair because God can bring good out of that. And he illustrates that through the life of Jesus. And that was the first point. We covered this several weeks ago. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. Christ also died for sins once for all. Took care of everything. And he said it was the just for the unjust. In other words, Jesus didn't deserve it. We know that. It's our theology. We were guilty. Jesus was not. He died for us anyway. And that secured for us salvation. That's what brought us to God. Jesus being put to death in the flesh, he was really human, he had a real physical body, he really died. That unjust event secured our salvation. So that proves God can bring good out of injustice. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. The second point is the one that is a multi-part discussion. The resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. The second proof that God can bring good out of injustice is that the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. And the point is comprehensive. The writer makes the point, Peter makes the point, and then he illustrates the points with some very difficult language. As I mentioned before, this is very controversial material that we're covering I introduced it last week. It's very controversial what we're talking about today. The stuff we'll be talking about next week is controversial. So I tried to make sure that we don't miss the big picture. Jesus wins. That's the ultimate point of this text. Jesus wins. He died, but then he was made alive in the spirit. In other words, he rose again. As I mentioned last week, this was this in and of itself has some controversy, but I don't believe here they're talking about, Peter's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit did. I just think he's saying that Jesus, who had a real physical body and died, really did rise from the dead, and when he rose from the dead, he occupies a spiritual realm. He certainly had a real resurrected body. He ate with the disciples. He could say to Thomas, hey, touch me. This is a real body. I'm not a ghost. By the same token, though, he seems to have been able to walk through doors or at least materialize and dematerialize, according to the text. He is in heaven, so now he can transcend. None of us can walk into heaven. Jesus can do that. He's at the right hand of God. And so in the spirit, he occupies a different realm. And it ultimately is focused on declaring his victory. He was put to death in the flesh, but he didn't stay dead. He was made alive in the spirit. And that's the ultimate hope for us. One day we're going to die, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you're not going to stay dead. You're going to be with Jesus. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, and then one day you will get a resurrected, glorified body. We all will. The ultimate point of all of this, if you recall, to people who may suffer, even though they did the right thing, is that Jesus' victory secured our victory. Jesus wins, so we win. 
Not because of anything we did, but because of everything he did. None of that is the controversy, really. But how Peter describes that and how he illustrates Jesus being alive in the Spirit is what creates all of the controversy. I alluded to it at the end of the message last week, but let's look again, and I'm just only going to focus on part of it today. We're not going to get as far as I would like. We never do. But I'm going to try very hard not to confuse you. So what's the overarching point? Jesus wins. Remember that. If I confuse you with anything else, Jesus wins. So let's look at the text again. This is all part of the second point. The resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. It says at the end of verse 18, but made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few that as eight persons were brought safely through the water. As I mentioned when I introduced this whole section, commentators are all over the map, and I can't spend every Sunday for the next five Sundays explaining to you all the viewpoints even on this. I'm just going to tell you what I think the text is saying and why I think it's saying it. I'll allude, because if you have a study Bible, you may see some of the other references. But I'm going to do my best to explain what I think this text means, knowing up front that people who I respect and who are smarter than I am might take a different view. Again, one of the changes after Jesus rose from the dead was that his body, his resurrected body, after he had been made alive in the Spirit, was able to transcend the normal physical limitations that you and I experience. Again, he still had a physical body. He could say, touch me, put your hands in my side. This is me, I'm not a ghost. But he could also do miraculous things, which ultimately culminated with him ascending into heaven. But my study of this verse leads me to conclude that what Peter is saying is that after Jesus was resurrected, after he was made alive in the Spirit, he interacted with fallen angels, demons, who are currently bound. Now there's a lot there, and so let me try and explain what I'm talking about. He was made in the life and the spirit in which he also went. I think, again, can't get into all the nuances of everybody else's views. I think what he's saying is after Jesus was alive in the spirit, in that condition, he went. So whatever is occurring, I believe the best understanding of the language was after he was alive in the spirit... He went. Some people change the order of all that. They look at the reference to Noah and some people say, really all he's saying is that in the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning before he ever came to the earth, he was preaching the truth through Noah because Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I, I don't believe that's the best understanding of the text. 
There are other people, and if you grew up in a Catholic or perhaps even a Presbyterian background, the Apostles' Creed states this. There are some people who would believe that Jesus died on the cross. On the third day, he arose from the dead, and in between, he went to hell. That's part of the Apostles' Creed. Now, it's not part of the Apostles' Creed in the Methodist church that I grew up in, but I remember when Debbie and I, at one point when we were first married, she grew up primarily in a Presbyterian church that had a different Apostles' Creed. And they had descended into hell. That, I mean, that's there. How many of you ever have heard the Apostles' Creed, would descended into hell? Okay, I'm, it's just there. I don't believe that's what's being referred to. I think that I can explain why I land where I land, but I don't even think that that version of the Apostles' Creed is biblical. I don't think there's any biblical teaching that Jesus descended into hell. But we'll get there. First, Jesus is, Peter is clearly contrasting Jesus' death and Jesus being made alive. It's clear that's the contrast, so I don't think you can go back and say, well, this is talking about something that literally happened when Noah was on the earth, even though he alludes to Noah in a moment. Again, I don't believe that you'll find anywhere in Scripture, particularly when this verse, I say, doesn't teach it, where you're going to say that Jesus descended into hell after he died. I'm always struck by what Jesus said on the cross. And again, theology books write volumes on these types of issues. I'm just summarizing it. But I always go back to what Jesus said on the cross. And in Luke chapter 23, the account is given at verses 42 to 43. If you recall, one of the thieves on the cross looks like he got born again while he was dying. I won't say it looks like. I think he did because what's said here. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I don't see how you can reconcile that with Jesus going to hell. Because hell is not paradise. So my starting point is that I think we have a sequence here. And I think the text is teaching that whatever is going on happened after Jesus was made alive, meaning after he rose from the dead. I believe that's what Peter's saying. He died, he rose again, then he went and made proclamation. Now, he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, but even the word proclamation gets challenging. In fact, it's made challenging because in some of your versions you'll see that it's translated preached. It's not a wrong translation. It can mean that. And it is true that there are some places, many places, where this word is used to talk about proclaiming the gospel. But it doesn't inherently mean that. In other words, it's not always meaning that. It just means to proclaim. Like a herald proclaiming something. Why is that even important? Because there are some people that take heresy here and say that Jesus was preaching the gospel to people who already died who didn't hear the gospel. That's not what Peter's saying. In fact, you get into some aspects of other heretical views of Jesus and they cling to verses like this and say, hey, you got another shot. In fact, it would almost talk against Evangelism. Don't tell them. Maybe they'll get a second crack at it. It's wrong. That's not what Peter's saying. It's appointed to men to die once and then the judgment. You don't get a second chance. That's not what he's saying. 
Beyond that, since I think he's preaching to fallen angels, Jesus would never preach the gospel to fallen angels. So let me unfold this a little bit more. It says, In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient. I think this word spirits in this context, the best understanding, and there's more unanimity on this than on other points, but I think this is referring to angelic beings. And it's obviously referring to fallen angelic beings because it says who were disobedient. And remember, it's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus didn't die for the angels. Angels who sinned didn't get a chance to repent. They were judged. Hebrews 2.16, For assuredly he, meaning Jesus, does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Jesus came to save men and women, not angels. I think that's an aspect of why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, we see that even holy angels, those who didn't sin, marvel at this whole thing of the gospel. 1 Peter 1, 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Since Jesus didn't die for angels who sinned, and I believe the proclamation was made to fallen angels, angels who sinned, I don't believe the proclamation consisted of the gospel. So what did Jesus proclaim to these fallen angels, and where are these fallen angels? I've got to piece together some scriptures here, but I'm, I'm praying that you're following with me. I think Jesus proclaimed to certain demons, it is finished. Death is defeated. The ultimate victory has been won by Jesus' death on the cross. He made this proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And we have to Again, piece together some scriptures. It's clear that not all demons and not even Satan are in prison right now. Why do I say that? Because Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan's always bound by whatever God's sovereign will is. Book of Job makes clear Satan doesn't have free reign even when he attacks God's children and has to be with permission. But the fact remains, Satan's not bound. He's prowling around. And there are countless demons who are still at work deceiving the world. For example, 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Turn on TV preachers, turn on the internet, you'll find all of this. The doctrines of demons are proliferating. The point being, though, for our text, obviously not all demons are in prison. 
But there is a place already prepared, I believe. And I think as we look through a couple of texts that talk about it, this is what's in view. You can write down the reference. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And again, I'm, I'm trying to weave a picture and bring all this evidence together. The events that I'm about to read haven't happened yet, but they're real. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. So this hasn't happened yet. In the future Satan will be bound for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. But he's going to be bound and imprisoned in a place called the abyss. And I think that place called the abyss already exists. And that's what Peter's talking about. Why do I say that? Well, the demons knew about this place. You can write down the reference to Luke chapter 8, verses 27 to 31. Jesus had a lot of interactions with demons. And the demons, of course, knew who he was. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 8, Jesus bumps into a demon-possessed man. And when he came into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. And who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice... What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. It's clear that wasn't the man. That was the demons. They knew who he was, and they knew of torment. Verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Verse 31 is the key. They were employing him not to command them to go away into the abyss. They knew this place existed. They knew it was a place of torment for them and they said, don't send us there. They know one day they're going there. In Matthew 8... 29, and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they know one day they're going to be tormented. They know one day they're going to be judged. They're just saying, hey, wait a minute. Time's not now, is it? 
They knew one day the abyss was prepared for them. They knew it was torment. But they didn't want that to come any sooner than was necessary. Yet it also seems from the entirety of Scripture that there were some demons who had sinned in such a manner that God said to them, it's the abyss for you for now until the ultimate judgment. Why do I say this? There's a couple of references. In the book of Jude, of which there's just one chapter, verse 6, says this. It's a cryptic reference if it was just by itself, but I believe as we see this whole context saying something specific. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode... He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There are some angels who did something so bad that they're already bound. In fact, in Second Peter, Peter alludes to this exact same thing, which helps influence me of what I think Peter's talking about in First Peter, since Peter himself is dealing with it. In Second Peter chapter 2... Verses 4 and 5, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we see this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, there, I believe, is teaching in Scripture that says there is a place called the abyss, a place of darkness. It's a place where if an angel is there, it can't do anything except be tormented. One day Satan will go there for a thousand years. And when Jesus was on the earth, demons were afraid he would send them there before they were supposed to go there. But there's some angels there. I believe that it's those angels who are already bound in the pit, who are in darkness, that Jesus went and made proclamation to. After Jesus was alive, because he was in a spiritual realm, and he could transcend physical limitations, I believe that Jesus, although I don't believe it was from the time he died until the time he rose again, I believe after that at some point... There were some demons that were not privy to what was going on on the earth. They were in darkness. They're in the abyss. And Jesus went and told them, the victory is mine. Satan knows that. He's here. He saw it. The demons on the earth know that. It's interesting because from a human perspective, when Jesus died, it looked disastrous. His disciples were discouraged. What just happened? They still didn't understand everything. From a human perspective, the Jewish leaders had to be happy. We did it. This guy's gone. Finally. But I really believe from the entirety of Scripture, although it's not spelled out in all detail, I think the clarity of Scripture is such that the demonic world was not celebrating. 
they knew they were defeated. Satan's been lying about it ever since. The doctrines of demons are to keep mankind in darkness so that mankind doesn't understand that Jesus has the victory. But Jesus proclaimed his victory even to those angels who had fallen, who weren't privy to what was going on because they were in darkness, bound in the abyss. I think that's ultimately all that is trying to be conveyed here. Jesus wins. And Jesus even made sure that the people that might not have known about it knew about it. The angels who weren't roaming around. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 is a powerful proclamation of what Jesus did. It's a personal encouragement to me because I personalize it when I read it. When you were dead in your transgressions, Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There can't be anything better for us than that. Verse 15 says this, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I don't believe that's talking about the earthly rulers and authorities. That's talking about the angelic realm, the demonic realm. That's the victory. That's the proclamation. It's over. My children are redeemed. They're untouchable. That's what's supposed to be encouraging to us if we by chance, start suffering because we were doing the right thing. It seems unfair and it seems hard, but the encouragement for us is Jesus is alive. And the illustration of that is he even went and told the fallen angels that couldn't see, this happened. It's over. Again, I think Jesus was proclaiming the reality of what he had accomplished. It seems that Jesus knew there were some demons that literally were in the dark. They knew what was coming. They didn't know it happened. Jesus just let them know it happened. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five and 57 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus proclaimed victory. I think that's what Peter's teaching here. To those spirits who couldn't find out about it any other way. So we're making progress. We're not completely done. 
Because next week we're going to talk about what kind of disobedience caused some demons to be bound. Because I believe the best understanding is these demons have been bound since the time of Noah. That's why Peter's going to start talking about the time of Noah. And everything I'm talking about so far has been controversial. It just doesn't stop. It keeps going. And what I talk about next could be an area where there's perhaps even some elders of the church that don't have the exact same views. Let me tell you what we are unanimous in. Jesus wins. <laughs> that, that's what this is all about. So please, don't get so interested in the minutiae that you miss the ultimate point of this. Nothing wrong with studying a little bit more, but you could go crazy trying to read every single view of controversy on this. But I think the best understanding is what I've related to you. But at the end of the day, Jesus died and he didn't stay dead. He rose again and that's our hope. And even in the midst of unjust suffering, you win because Jesus wins. Let me close our time this morning in prayer. There's plenty of time to pray and then I'm going to step out because I need to go start thinking about Hebrews and we'll go from there. So, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, this is one of those texts that is very challenging. It's challenging to me personally. Lord, I'm doing my very best to teach the truth. I pray that you help us not to miss the big picture because of little things. Lord, there are occasionally things in Scripture that we struggle to fully understand. Yet I thank you, Lord, that those are just snippets and those are side notes. What is clear is that you sent your Son, who was just, to die for the unjust, which is us. And Jesus died and fully paid the penalty for all of our sins. And then he rose again, which gives us the hope of the resurrection. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that you would encourage us. And if, Lord, any of us should suffer unfairly because we were following you, I pray, Lord, in the midst of those moments, we would remember Jesus. And that even if we're suffering unjustly, we know in the end we win. Because one day we'll be with Jesus in paradise. And we thank you for that promise. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.